Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I was uh, remiss before I, a couple of people momentarily slipped my mind um, that we need to continue to pray for too. Uh, Raymond McNeil, who uh, fell last Sunday after church and uh, broke his hip, who's recovering from surgery, remember to pray for him. And uh, also remember Dorothy McConnell, um, who's been hospitalized for a long time, as most of you know, who also suffered a broken leg this last week and uh, will be facing some additional surgery this upcoming week. We are in part four of our message series, Building a Great Life. This morning I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about building a life of commitment. Indeed, the Bible says that... Uh, Nothing affects your life more than the commitments that you choose to make. We don't really live in a society that's good at making commitments anymore. I still remember the story of William Bennett, our former Secretary of Education, who got a wedding invitation. He was invited to attend the wedding of a couple who were going to remain married for as long as love would last. He said, I bought them the perfect wedding gift paper plates, because he knew that you don't always wake up every morning feeling loved. And he said, I really wish that they would have made a commitment to being together forever, death being the only way that separates them. We live in a society today that claims to be overcommitted. I would say we don't live in a society that are overcommitted, we have, or, or they uh, not overcommitted, but they are overinvolved. They have a lot of things, and as a result, have a difficult time committing to much of anything. They think nothing of bailing out of things like marriages and clubs and organizations and classes and even churches. Well, the Bible says that nothing is going to affect your life more than commitments you make, and we want to talk about those commitments today. And I want to start by talking about three profound effects that commitments have on your life. First of all, the things that I commit myself or the things that you commit yourself to really show <clears throat> your values. They show you very clearly what it is you love in life. In fact, I would tell anybody who's not married, you know, particularly young people, that if anybody ever tells you they love you and is not willing to commit to you, they don't really love you. Because there's no such thing as love without commitment. The essence of love is that I would actually commit myself to somebody wholeheartedly to meet the needs of that other person. Commitments tell us what we really love. For example, I can tell you that I, I really value my family, but if I commit all of my time to work and none to my family, it shows you what's really important in my life. If I tell you that I value my health, but I don't take any time to take care of myself. It really tells you what I value in life. See, the uncommitted life really means nothing is important to me. And if you don't make any commitments at all in your life, what you're basically saying is, the only thing that's important to me is me. The uncommitted life is, in essence, the selfish life. So remember, when you make a commitment, it's going to show your values. It shows what you love. The second thing I would tell you is that your commitments will shape your life. 
I mean, if you believe that money is the most important thing in life and you make your commitment there, that's going to say something and that's going to shape your life. If I believe that being well-liked and being popular is important, then my whole life is going to be shaped by that. If I think that having a good time is the most important thing in life, then my life is going to be shaped by that. See, once you choose the commitments in your life, whatever they may be, your character is set. That's why I would say, particularly to young people, even to older people, be careful what you commit your life to. There's a third thing, and that's that your commitments really determine your destiny. Now, Jesus says it this way. He says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will a person really give or make a commitment to that will take care of his destiny? Now, it is said that the average person in America will live 25,550 days. And every day when you wake up, you will probably make a commitment to something or another. Now, there are some people that every day they wake up, they make a commitment to that one-eyed monster called the television. There are people who make a commitment every day to exchange it for trashy novels or, you know, computer games on the Internet. There are some people whose entire commitment every day is to do nothing. But see, wise people plan that exchange by making what we call commitments. All I'm really saying to you is, friends, that when you make a commitment, you are choosing how to invest your time, how to invest your talent, and how you invest your treasure. You are literally choosing how you want to live your life, not only here, but more importantly, in eternity. And if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. Every choice you make, every commitment you make, has a consequence. There's a little kickback to every little compromise you make. I mean, this will show your values. They'll shape your life, determine your destiny. So we need to learn to make wise commitments. Now, I don't think it comes as any surprise to you at all that the most important commitment that you and I could ever make in our life would be a commitment to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. But do you know that even that has a price tag? There is a price to pay the day you stand up and say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The day you walk the aisle, cross the line, whatever you want to call it, there is now a price to pay. If you didn't hear it before, let me refresh your memory. It comes from the text I read earlier from Luke chapter 14. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be a Christ follower, a Christian, a disciple, whatever you want to call it, he said, but if you're going to follow me, you must love me more than everyone else. And then he gives you kind of a laundry list. He said, you've got to love me more than you love your mom and dad. You need to love me more than your own children. You need to love me more than you love your brothers and sisters. Yes, you need to love me even more than you love your own life. He says, otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. That's a steep price. That's pretty stiff. In fact, Jesus makes demands on your life and my life that nobody else in this world would probably even dare make. But, but, but what's really interesting is he has a right to do it. Why does Jesus have the right to say to us what he says here in Luke 14? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, he's the one who made you. No such thing as a self-made man. 
or a self-made woman. You're here because God created you. He also loves you. I mean, he loves you enough to go to a cross and die for you. That's how much he loves you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, even though you may not always see it. He died on that cross for you. I mean, nobody else in this entire world can, can, base, can claim those things, that you were made by them, planned for a purpose by them, and that they died for you. I mean, it's no wonder that Jesus can say, you need to put me first. You know, some people, when they think about their lives, I've done this with people. I've, I've given them a picture. kind of looks like a pie. And I said, okay, divide this pie up and arrange it any way you want. <clears throat> and a lot of people, they cut their pie up into, oh, five, six, seven, eight pieces. And they say, well, uh, here I've got my career slice. And next to my career slice, I've got my relationship slice. And then I've got my sex life slice. And I've got my goal slice and ambition slice. And I've got my school slice down here. And, and I've got my, my dream slice over here. And, and then over here, I've got my Jesus slice. And Jesus looks at that and he goes, what are you thinking? I don't want to be a slice of anybody's life. I want to be the whole pie. In fact, if you think about Jesus as being the whole pie, Jesus says, okay, if I'm it, how do you fit that other stuff into your relationship with me? And if you can't figure out how to fit that into Jesus, guess what? Maybe it doesn't even belong in your life. See, friends, if Jesus is not Lord of all your life, then Jesus is not Lord at all in your life. C.S. Lewis, great Christian writer, put it this way. He said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Christianity cannot be just moderately important. That doesn't even make any sense. You know, I've heard people say, well, I'm just kind of a casual Christian. That's kind of like somebody saying, I'm semi-pregnant, or I'm half-dead. No, you're either pregnant or you're dead, or you're alive. I mean, if the Bible is, the, is a lie, if Jesus really isn't God, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why are we wasting our time here this morning? I mean, the last one out, shut off the lights and lock the door. On the other hand, if Christianity is true... If Jesus did suffer, die, and then come back to life again, if this is all true, then it deserves everything we've got. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your family. It's more important than your goals. It's more important than your career. Jesus is either Lord of your life or he's not. There's no middle ground here. And when you make that choice, Jesus says, there will be a cost. When I am it in your life, there will be a cost. Now, how do you make Jesus number one in your life? I'm going to just give you four examples this morning. This is not the end of the list, but just four ways you can make Jesus number one in your life. First is you can give God the first thoughts of each day. Give God the first thoughts of each day. Psalm 5, verse 3 says, Each morning I will look to heaven to you. Now, I'm not saying that the moment you wake up and your eyes pop open that you immediately fall out of bed to your knees, pray, read the Bible. But that's not a bad idea. But what I might suggest is that before you get out of bed, maybe one of the first things you actually say would be, Good morning, Lord, instead of saying, Good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> I mean, try this for a change. 
You know, people wake up to an alarm clock. I mean, there's no, nothing more alarming than an alarm clock. I, some people need them, but try this. Try talking to God before you talk to anybody else. I mean, read the good news before you read the bad news in the paper. I mean, look up and, and look at God, the giver of all good things, before you turn on the television and see all of the bad stuff in this world. You know, research has told us that the last thing you think about at night kind of determines the first thoughts you have in the morning. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Maybe the last thing you heard before you went to bed was some silly, sappy song. You know, and the song just kind of went through your head, and the next morning you woke up, you're still singing that silly song. Well, in the same way, you can actually train your mind so that the very first thought the next day is of Jesus. I mean, that's if the last person you're talking to at night is Jesus. I mean, why not consider tonight, just as you lay your head on, on your pillow, after you maybe you've kissed your wife, said I love you, or whatever you do, thrown the cat out, but when your head is hitting the pillow, to say, Jesus, I know you're with me. I know you're in me. I know you're watching over me. And I want to see you first thing in the morning, Jesus, so good night, and may the very first thing I think about in the morning is to say, good morning, Lord. And you know, you can all do that. That's not that hard to do. Make him your first thought. Here's the second thing I'd suggest, and that's to give him the first day of every week. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. It tells us that on the first day of the week, the disciples came together. Now, what did they come together for? Well, it's called worship. It's called worship. Now, you might ask yourself, why do we worship on Sunday? I'm only going to give you a couple of reasons. One reason is because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's called Easter. And really, every Sunday we come together, we ought to be celebrating Easter and what Easter means to us. Because he lives, so are we going to live. If God can raise a dead person to life, he can raise dead marriages back to life. He can raise dead limbs back to life. God can raise anything back to life that he chooses to do. And we get together, we worship a God like that. That's one reason we get together on Sunday. There's another reason. It's just very simply because it's the first day. And we want to kind of start our week off right. What better thing than to get up on a Sunday morning before your week begins and get together with a bunch of family and friends and all together say, thank you, God, for all that you've done. There's a third thing you can do, and that's to give him the first 10% of every paycheck. The Bible says back in uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. Now, we would probably call that tithing today, and uh, I went back and checked my notes. I've talked about tithing every Sunday since I've been here. Are you getting tired of it yet? <laughs> I hope not, because you're going to probably hear about it for a while. I think tithing is very important. It's kind of the key to our hearts. It is saying, Lord, all of this wonderful stuff you've given to me, I want to take care of it. I want to do with it what you would ask me to do. See, tithing, let me just explain a couple things about it. Tithing is not giving to charity. And charity is not tithing. Those are two different things. That's why you hear me sometimes say we, have, we receive our tithes and we receive our offerings. Now, you ought to give to charity. I mean, for example, when Nancy and I contribute money to Christ for India, that's a good thing. But that's not tithing. Tithing is when I give that 
first 10% to the Lord as an act of worship, and I come and I bring it back to the storehouse. And what is the storehouse? Well, up to seven weeks ago, the storehouse was called Lord of Life. But guess what it is today? The storehouse is called First Lutheran Church. Why would you even think about doing that, by the way? I, I'm going to give you three reasons why I think my wife and I do it. And I think it's, it's three reasons why a lot of people, a lot of Christians do. First of all, you learn to do it in gratitude for the past. It's a way of saying, Lord, thank you for where I've come from. It's a way to learn to keep your priorities straight right here in the present. And it's also a great way to learn to do it in faith, counting on God to be faithful in the future. There's a fourth way that I can, I can do this, and that's that I'm going to give God first consideration in every decision. Every decision. Many of you know that my life verse is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, there's a tail end of it. It says, in everything you do, put God first, and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Now, I don't know about you, but do you want to be successful? Do you, would you like to have, you know, have want your finances to be successful or your family to be successful or your business? Then I would say maybe what you ought to do is consider memorizing that verse and then doing it. Doing what God asks you to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God. Praise him for who he is and what he's done in your life and what you're sure he's going to be doing in the future. I mean, those are great ways for you to give Christ back something. You give him the first. But I need to tell you something else this morning. You need to understand that there are some pitfalls to making commitments. I'm going to share something with you that I've learned as a pastor in 20-some years. And I'm sure every pastor in this world who's pastored at all for a while could tell you this. The truth is that two, three, four, five years from now, some of you will not be here. I'm not talking about that you've died and gone to heaven. You just plain simple won't be here. The reason you won't be here is because you stopped walking with the Lord. You stopped growing in the Lord. You may not even be attending a church anymore. Now, why does that happen in churches? Why does it happen that people are there for a while and then suddenly they disappear? Now, I used to really worry when people kind of left the church. I think I took it way too personal. It was like someday if people, too many people left, God would look at my Bible and he'd putty up the notches that I'd carved in there when we got new people. And I realized that if somebody leaves a church to go to another church, guess what? God's not lost a thing. But I'm just worried about, oh, but I've lost my part of the kingdom. No, I shouldn't think that way. God be praised if people are still worshiping. The people I worry about are those people who come and sit for a while. They kind of sit and soak, and then all of a sudden they just walk away. How does that happen? Why does it happen? I'm going to suggest to you that it's because their commitment is about a mile wide and only about an inch deep. I mean, when you don't have much commitment at all to the Lord and his service, when difficult times come into your life, when hard times strike, when there are disagreements or fusses or feuds or deaths or whatever it is, what happens? Suddenly people with kind of a casual, convenient Christianity slide out the door. How does that happen? 
Let me tell you a couple of the pitfalls of being committed. One of them is we can easily get distracted. We lose sight of what it is we're supposed to keep our eyes on. You know, we're told as Christ followers, keep your eyes on the prize. Get your feet focused towards heaven and walk that way. Look to Jesus. But we know in Mark chapter 4, 19, it says, the attractions of this world, the delights of wealth, the search for success, and the lure of nice things comes in and what? Crowds out God. Now, you look at that. If you, if you looked at Mark 4, 19, you'd say, is there anything evil in this list or bad in this list or anything wicked? The answer is no, not really. There's nothing wrong with wealth or success or nice things. But we know what they can do. They can crowd Jesus out of your life. I think your Bible is probably pretty close to the same as mine. In the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. But what happens when we start putting things like wealth and success and nice things, and we start looking at them, they become those little G-gods. They become idols. And for some people, they're so caught up in this world that they lose sight of what's truly important. And when difficult times come, they're gone. Don't let that happen to you. There's another reason it happens. It's because people become complacent. What happens when you become complacent is you start living off of past commitments and you don't ever make any new ones. We have five young people preparing to be confirmed. They heard me say this on Wednesday night. They may not have remembered, so I'll say it again. They're going to stand up here and make a commitment in a few weeks. They're going to commit their lives to God, to this congregation, to the continued study of his word, faithful Bible study, and on and on and on. But if that's the last time they ever make a commitment, it may not be very strong. I know a lot of people who said, well, you know, back in 1921 when I was confirmed by St. John's, you know, St. John's by the gas station by Pastor Schmidt, I made this commitment. And I think to myself, well, good for you. But have you made any commitments since? Have you grown at all since? Have you updated your commitments at all since? Or have you just been kind of coasting and writing on what you learned way back in 1927? I remember back when I was principal of a Lutheran school in Indiana. Last day of the year, the kids were supposed to clean out their lockers. And I was way down at the end of the hallway. And at the far end of the hallway, I saw a young boy who was an eighth grader. His name was Chucky. And I saw Chucky with stuff in his hand. He was tearing it up, and he was throwing it into a big trash can. And I thought to myself, I wonder what he's throwing away. And I, got, I walked down the hallway. He was taking notebooks. He was tearing them in half and throwing them in the trash. And I got a little closer. I noticed he had a Lutheran hymnal, the old TLH, in his hands. And he tore that sucker in half, and he slam-dunked it into the trash can. And then he had his, as I start moving quicker, he's got his catechism. And the next thing you know, he's got his Bible in his hand. And I remember yelling, Chucky, stop. And I said, what on earth are you doing? He says, hey, I got confirmed last weekend. I'm getting rid of everything I don't need anymore. Now, you can laugh or moan about that, but there are a lot of people who live their lives the exact same way. Someone has said, why do you take big confirmation pictures? 
That's so you can remember the two-thirds of them that don't show up the next Sunday. There are a lot of people who make commitments but find it easy to bail out because they don't get up every day and say, Lord, I still want to remain committed to you. It's still important. A good thing for all of us to do today would be to come up to this altar and make a commitment one more time to say, Lord, this was really important. I don't want to live off of something I made a long time ago. I want to renew this vow each and every day of my life to draw me ever closer to you. Joshua chapter 7, there's a, there's a great story. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've been enslaved for 400 years. They wander around for 40 years. Moses dies, and then Joshua leads them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And when they get there, they're supposed to take the land. And, and the very first place they come to is Jericho. Remember that? The most fortified city in the world. It is totally impenetrable. We talked about this. We talked about building a life of faith, how they marched around the walls. The walls came down. They had a great victory, a big miracle. But you know what happened next? You've got to do the Paul Harvey here in your Bible. What's the rest of the story? If you go on, they just beat the biggest city in the world, and now they've got to go to a little town called Ai. Ai. Joshua chapter 7 says, Soon after Jericho's defeat, Joshua sent some of his men up to spy on the city of Ai. Upon their return, they told Joshua, It's just a small city. It won't take more than two or 3,000 of us to destroy it. There's no point in all of us going. Do you hear the cockiness in that? The complacency in that? So Joshua, it says, sent approximately 3,000 soldiers, and they were soundly defeated. Joshua even throws his hands in the air, and he said, Oh God, why have you brought us over the river if you're going to let these people kill us? Now, you can and should read the rest of the story. It's right here in Joshua chapter 7. But these people got complacent. And guess what? They got beat up as a result of it. They were saying, we were part of a big miracle back then, so we're just going to kind of sit and coast out the rest of the trip. Now, let me ask you this. Where do you suppose those people got that silly idea to coast? Do you think God gave them that idea? I don't think so. I think it was the devil. See, we need to be aware that the devil wants us to become complacent. He wants us to be comfortable little pew ploppers and comfortable little pew warmers. He wants us to have our own tidy little holy huddle where we can kind of sit and bask in the glow of past victories. I'm not sure that's really what God wants, but I think that's what the devil would like. You know, when the Israelites marched through the Red Sea, was that the last time they were ever tested? Don't think so. Friends, let me be honest with you. As a Christ follower, your life is going to be one test and one challenge after another, after another, and after another. Romans 14, 12 says, don't be lazy in showing your devotion. Use your energy in serving the Lord. Or if you read the Phillips translation of the Bible, it says, let us keep the fires of the Spirit burning. All I'm saying is we cannot live on yesterday's level of commitment. We need to keep on keeping on. We need to keep on developing spiritual muscle. We need to be involved regularly and daily in the spiritual disciplines of life, of worship and Bible study and prayer and fellowship and evangelism and stewardship and all the rest. Now, 
I'm kind of a bottom line kind of guy. I always like to know what do I get if I do all that. I mean, what's the payoff for making a commitment to God? If you want to look at it that way. There are two of them. There's a long-term and a short-term. Let me tell you the short-term benefit of being sold out to Jesus, the short-term benefit of being a Jesus freak. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Don't worry, saying, What will we eat, drink, or wear? Your heavenly Father knows you need him. But seek first God's kingdom, and all that other stuff, he says, will be added unto you. See, the very first payoff to selling out to Jesus totally is that I don't need to worry about a thing anymore. God says, when you give your life totally to me, I will, res- I will assume responsibility for taking care of every aspect of your life. But see, God doesn't assume responsibility for all of your needs if you're only partially committed. See, God doesn't owe any of us anything. But in his great grace, he says, when you can say, God, I'm all yours, you know, take my life, let it be, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments, take my days, take my silver and my gold, take my, all of that, God says, then when you say that, I'm going to look at you and say, that's what I've been waiting for. Now I will take care of you. See, when you sell out to Jesus, you can basically sit back, take your hands off the steering wheel, and let God do the driving. What a wonderful benefit that is. There's a long-term benefit. I'll simplify it, give you in one word. It's called heaven. But in Matthew 25, it said, The master will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come share your master's happiness. You know, in that little verse, there are three eternal benefits. They're called affirmation, promotion, and celebration. I mean, the wonderful affirmation that God would look at you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. What a wonderful deal when God can give you a promotion and say, Hey, you've done well down there, kiddo. Look what I got prepared for you now. Or a celebration. Come and share your master's happiness. I got news for you. When God parties, that's a party you don't want to miss out on. Henry Varley one time said, The world is yet to see what God can do in and through and for the person who's totally committed to Christ. Second Chronicles 6.19 puts it this way, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Friends, God, who made the greatest commitment that anyone could make to send his own son to die for us, is looking for people to use in this world. He's looking for people to bless in this world. He's looking for people that he wants to strengthen in this world. And there's only one qualification, and the qualification is to have a fully committed heart. I want to challenge each of you this this morning. I want to challenge this church to become a people of deep commitment, deep, spiritual, God-driven, God-blessed commitment in a shallow, superficial world. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. You made us. You love us. You gave your life for us. We want to give our lives back to you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may notice that there's no closing song this morning. That's because I'm going to ask you this morning to come forward to make a recommitment. I don't care what you recommit to. You may do it right where you're seated this morning. If you feel more comfortable sitting in your seat to make a rededication, a recommitment to God, 
or to make that first-time commitment, whether it's to Jesus or to be a better person in terms of reading your Bible or prayer, whatever it is. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'm going to stay up here. I'll be willing to pray with you for that time of dedication and that commitment. And whenever you feel comfortable then to leave, God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you real, real soon. Go with his peace.